All right, good morning. Turn to Mark chapter 9. In your chair Bibles, it's page 897. You may have heard these words from Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled, and that has made all the difference. 237 years earlier, John Bunyan wrote his famous Pilgrim's Progress. And by the way, every Christian in this room, if you haven't already, you need to read Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, there's a kid's version of Pilgrim's Progress called Little Pilgrim's Progress. I recommend that to you as well. This story follows a man named Christian who leaves the city of destruction and journeys towards the celestial city, which is, of course, heaven. And on the way, on this path less traveled, he encounters all sorts of roadblocks and fearsome creatures. And the story serves as a parable for the Christian, but also a warning for the non-Christian. Every person on this planet is on one of two paths. Either you're walking on this path towards the celestial city, or you're walking away from it on a different path. You know, as you look at the Bible's teaching, teachings, it has many, many concerns, many things it's interested in, many things it wants Christians to understand and obey. But really, there's one underlying concern that kind of rules all of the concerns of the Bible. Will you, will I, will we repent and believe in Jesus and start to walk towards the celestial city, or will we reject Christ and walk towards the city of destruction? In our passage today, Jesus warns his disciples about the path to hell, and he entices them to walk the other path towards heaven. It's not an easy path. It's the road less traveled, but it's the path that leads to everlasting life with God. Hear God's word, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of the sermon in one sentence. Today, welcome the fire of Jesus' discipleship program, lest tomorrow you find yourself in the fires of hell. It's a very sobering thought, isn't it? I'll say it again one more time. Today, welcome the fire of Jesus' discipleship program, lest tomorrow you find yourself in the fires of hell. Of hell. Now, before we get going here, I want you to notice there's two main commandments in our passage. One is found in verse 42, notice. Uh, another is found in verses 43 and following. And these commands, we're going to get to them in a second here, but these commands are rooted in two things. 
the reality of hell, which is repeated throughout verses 43 and following, but also the call to die to self. You'll notice that starting in verse 49, that Jesus says that you will be salted with fire. That is a refining fire. So you've got these two commands rooted in two fires. I want you to keep the logic of the passage in your minds as we walk through this. Two commands motivated by two fires. We're going to unpack this passage actually backwards. First look at the two fires, and we're going to come back and look at the two commands. And I'm indebted to uh, the teaching, the writing ministries of Jason Meyer and Kent Hughes and Kevin DeYoung on this particular passage, especially as we look at the doctrine of hell. So let's start with two motivating fires, two motivating fires. What are these two fires? What's the fires of condemnation? That's the first one. And the second one is the fire of purification. Now notice the uh, passage puts our gaze first on the fires of hell, looking in verses 42 through 49. In these verses, we see a number of pictures, a number of allusions to hell. Most notably, the picture of unquenchable fire. In the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, in his most famous sermon, it was about hell, he painted a picture of sinful humanity dangling like a spider above the fiery pits of hell. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Maybe you've read that sermon before. Let me read you a quote from that sermon. O sinner, Consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as as against many of the damned in hell. Now, I wonder whether that paragraph offends you. It should probably make all of us in this room rather uncomfortable. You know, for many, that paragraph represents everything that is wrong with Christianity. Maybe it conjures up for you, as it does me, people with obscene signs on sidewalks, on college campuses, screaming at passerbyers about God's wrath. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, I'm a Christian, but that's not my Christianity. Let's, let's get past the, the unloving picture of God. Many well-known Christians would agree including George MacDonald, a 19th century writer of fiction and fantasy, influenced uh, many people that you probably read, like Tolkien and Lewis and Chesterton. Well, this man, George MacDonald, hated the God of Jonathan Edwards. He once said that he loads the God Edwards portrays while loving the God he sees in Jesus. Now, friends, is this doctrine of hell just kind of a Puritan thing or a fundamentalist thing or just kind of people that are really intense within the Christian world thing? Or is it a Jesus thing? Did Jesus himself teach about hell? According to the passage that I just read, apparently so. In fact, the word Jesus uses for hell is the Greek word Gehenna. So I want you to repeat after me, Gehenna. Okay, there it is. It's used 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times by Jesus. In fact, Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. Gehenna was an actual place. It was a valley in uh, southwest Jerusalem. It was a place where the garbage and rubbish would be burned up, and so you've got worms and maggots and decay and, and fire that burns and smolders continuously. It's just an awful, awful place. And so in Jesus's day, that place became a metaphor for hell. 
So what can we kind of gather up from Jesus' teaching here about hell from these descriptions that you see in verses 43 to 48? Well, the first thing we can conclude is that hell is real. Hell is real. Yes, this is a metaphor that we have before us, but it represents an actual place. When Jesus says that bodies will burn, he's demonstrating that hell involves both spiritual but also physical torment. Listen to his words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So first of all, friends, hell is a real place. Secondly, we can also say that the torment of hell is incomparable. Incomparable to any earthly torment. And that's because temporary torment is better than any sort of eternal torment, as you would imagine. Being chained and thrown into the sea where you are helpless to save yourself. This is verse 42. That's like something out of a horror movie, right? It's awful stuff. And Jesus says hell is worse than that. Amputating body parts, taking out your eye or limb. That's terrible, isn't it? And Jesus says that being physically maimed and alive is better than having your whole body burned in hell. Finally, we can say that the suffering of hell is unending. Notice it says unquenchable fire, where worms don't die. That's a, a phrase taken from the passage that our brother Jake just read a few minutes ago. So here we've got a fire that just keeps going on and on. In Gehenna, there were dead bodies of those who did not have families to bury them. Worms and maggots lived in these corpses, a gruesome sort of picture. But the difference with hell, actual hell, is that even maggots don't die there. There is no final decomposition to the point of total elimination. Hell is not the end of our existence. You know, some Christians, well-meaning Christians, believe that. You get some punishment, but then you kind of cease to exist. The fire kind of takes you out. And it sounds merciful, doesn't it? But friends, it's not taught in the Bible. Listen to our faith church statement of faith on this very point. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever the condemnation and eternal conscience punishment. That's some strong language, isn't it? Represents Jesus' teaching here that we see, these pictures of Gehenna. Friends, hell isn't just a Christless eternity. Sometimes we say that because we lack courage. It's not just the absence of God. It's the absence of God's blessing and the presence of God's curse. Hell is the active judgment of God on unrepentant sinners. We have to just pause there for a second. This is strong stuff, isn't it? I mean, this is scary stuff in many ways, isn't it? We don't want to sugarcoat this, though. You might be thinking, Pastor, you're getting really intense here. Like you and Jonathan Edwards, you guys are really intense about this hell thing. I just wanted to redirect your eyes to the passage. I don't think it was Jonathan Edwards or other pastors that kind of conjure up this sort of intensity as we're thinking about hell. It's Jesus himself that teaches, teaches us with stunning, stunning clarity about hell. And so we need to listen. We need to understand what is at stake. So that's the fire of condemnation, the fire of hell. What about the fire of purification? Put your eyes on verses 49 and 50 at the end of the passage. Now, how do I know this is a motivating fire, this fire of purification? Well, notice the first word in verse 49. It says, for. 
So Jesus' teaching prior to this is grounded in what he says in verse 49. Do everything you can to kill sin. We're going to get there in a second, but that's what he's saying before this. Do everything you can to kill sin because for, and then he gives some rationale. Here's some motivation. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now, what does that mean? Leviticus 2 verse 13 tells us that all temple sacrifices have salt in them. So salt speaks to sacrifice. And so the thought here with Jesus' teaching is that every Christian ought to view their life as a sacrifice to God. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And so being salted with fire means that we will be tested and purified and refined. So on this narrow path, the fires of suffering will purge away the dross so that our lives will be a better sacrifice to God. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Friends, this is Jesus' discipleship program. It's one of fire, the refiner's fire. And what further confirms this, of course, is the broader context. What has he been teaching for a few chapters now? Well, three times in chapters 8 through 10, Jesus predicts his own death, but he also teaches his disciples about their cross-shaped life. He's telling them, essentially, not only do I have a cross, but you will have your own crosses, your own losses. You know, you've been wondering about who's the greatest. You need to be last. You need to serve. So here's some fire. There's a fire of purification. In fact, this entire block of teaching, chapters 8 to, through chapters 10, is all about the cross-shaped life, which is really the narrow path, the life of fire. So if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, get ready for the purifying fire. That's what Jesus is teaching. Now, I would imagine you're thinking, Pastor, this, this isn't very encouraging. Well, this is kind of, you know, heavy. I mean, what benefit is it? For me as a Christian to know this, to embrace this sort of perspective, let's think on this together a little bit. First of all, isn't it freeing to have Jesus teach this to us? Not everything in life is supposed to be great. You know, the world tells us that a successful life must look like the American dream. You know, you get your four-bedroom house and lots of money and two kids and so forth and letters after your name and a smooth, uneventful life with lots of vacation and the perfect social media presence and so forth. Jesus says, though, a successful life is one that is salted with fire. Isn't that free? But even more than that, God has designed it to be this way. Who's doing the salting with fire? It's God. And if God has designed the Christian life to be one of fire, then his grace will meet us at every pain point and need. He doesn't leave us alone on the narrow path. You know, it might be a thorny path, but it's not a lonely path. Jesus has walked it before you himself, and he hasn't abandoned you today on it. He's with you still, and so are God's people. That's why we gather here every Sunday morning. Here are the people who are on this narrow path, and we walk it together. We help each other out, don't we? So his grace will meet us in the toil. Listen to the famous words of John Newton from Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's through this fire, 
that our faith will emerge as purified and our lives will be a pleasing sacrifice to God. But there's yet another positive thing about this purifying fire. Look at verse 50. Jesus continues, he's kind of mixing metaphors here between fire and salt. Now he says in verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, salt was used in the ancient world to preserve food from rotting. And so what Jesus is saying here is that those who endure this purifying fire, who walk this narrow path, they will be a sort of preserving influence in a decaying world. The narrow path, friends, may hurt. It may be excruciating at times. Our crosses, our losses, they are no small thing. But friends, this fire does something in you that benefits this world. Jesus said that we Christians are the salt of the earth. This is from his Sermon on the Mount. And so whether we are in the military, wherever we might be, in business or in education, in the classroom or on a campus or in our neighborhoods or in our, in our office complexes, Jesus calls us to have a preserving influence. Our presence ought to quicken the conscience of others and elevate conversation and restrain ethical corruption and promote honesty and raise the moral atmosphere of those around us. What happens, friends, when we get to know people who are without Christ? Does our presence make a difference? One purpose of this purifying fire is to make us salty, to make our Christian distinction clear before a watching world. Not to make us harsh or angry or bitter, not that kind of salty, just to be clear, but rather to make us influential for the cause of Christ. So I just kind of wonder, as you're engaging with people in your neighborhoods or maybe family members that don't know Jesus, are you flavorful? Do you bring a sort of preserving element to that relationship or to those situations? Or are you rather bland? So again, we have two remarkable fires before us. The first is designed to warn us off the wide and popular path. The second is meant to inspire us to embrace the narrow path. This narrow path is Jesus' discipleship program. It isn't easy, but it's good. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's certainly good for us today, but it's also and especially good for you and me a million years from now, right? So two motivating fires. Now, what do they motivate us to do? I want you to notice the two commands starting in verse 42. So they motivate us to obey. They motivate us to obey these two commands. Look at verse 42. What does life on the narrow path look like more specifically? Here are two descriptions. You don't, uh, you don't lead others astray. That's what we see in verse 42. And then verse 43 and following, we see uh, you kill your sin. And so if you want to avoid the path to hell, if you want to embrace the fire of purification, here are the things that you're going to do. Here's what your life's going to look like. Two things. First of all, verse 42, don't jeopardize the faith of others. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, at first glance, you may be thinking he's talking about children when it says little ones. But Jesus speaks of little ones here and elsewhere, not as just kids, but really any disciple of Jesus, perhaps especially those who are vulnerable, like a child or a young Christian or a doubting Christian. Jesus says, don't cause them to stumble. 
Woe be it to the person who turns anyone from following Jesus. It would be better for them to have a giant millstone around their neck and drown. There's no coming back from that situation, right? There's something particularly horrifying about that situation, being dropped down, this heavy object around your neck, down into darkness, struggling, and then hanging motionless in the darkness, hidden from life, hidden from this world. Jesus says better that than to lead one of his disciples off the narrow path. Woe to those who engage in spiritual seduction. Woe to preachers who claim the Christian faith and even use sacred vocabulary, but kind of redefine the words to suit themselves. There are these teachers, these professors that are out there in the world who see it as their mission to undermine the faith of Christians. You see it in these big secular schools and sometimes even in Christian institutions, unfortunately. There's a fine line between helping Christians grow up intellectually and intentionally deconstructing a person's faith, never to build it up again. It would be better for them to drown in the sea, says Jesus. That is sobering, isn't it? Unless we think this commandment only relates to those outside the church, have you thought about your own influence of others? Maybe it's your kids or your friends, even your spouse. Have you ever considered how your sinful or hypocritical behavior might be a reason someone has given up their faith? Friends, it's possible. Someone is watching you. That sounds a little creepy, right? Someone's watching you. But it's true. Someone is watching you. And if you disappoint them, that person might stumble. And it might be someone you love deeply. We can say this negatively. Don't lead others astray. We can also say this more positively. Have a godly influence in your relationships. Friends, do you have a positive influence on the next generation, on younger Christians, on one another here at Faith Church? How is your saltiness? You know, our kids right now, they are like sponges, aren't they? They are absorbing information at the speed of light from what they hear and see and what they're uh, taught. Someone is catechizing the next generation. It will either be the world or it will be the church. There is this kind of thick, heavy cultural air that we breathe in each day. Ideas and narratives and lies that are embedded in so much of what we intake. Are we, the church, providing a better alternative? Are we offering the clean air of the Bible and the gospel to our friends, to our children, to our coworkers, to one another? Or are we just kind of coasting, kind of passively receiving and allowing others around us to just passively receive? Fathers in this room, I want to address you directly, and I'm addressing, of course, myself too as I share. God has especially called you as a father, as a husband, to set the tone with your wife and children. How is your influence? I'm guessing we don't have a lot of fathers here who are pumping in polluted air into their uh, homes, but neutral is not positive. Passivity can be just as devastating as abuse. So can you tell me right now, husband, father, can you tell me right now of positive, biblical, intentional ways you are influencing your children and spouse? You're helping them. You're encouraging them. How are you helping them get on this narrow path? How are you helping them stay on this narrow path towards a celestial city? 
And this will require not only the the right practices, the right habits within your own household, that's absolutely true, but also the right patience, the right gentleness, the right listening, the right care, the right amount of time. You may be thinking, gosh, Pastor, you're you're putting some pressure on me right now. You know, you're you're kind of loading me up a little bit. I don't think I'm actually doing that. I believe through this passage, Jesus, and by his spirit, he is putting some healthy pressure on every single person in this room. It's designed by God through this passage. The question is, how will we receive it? How will you and I respond? Forgiveness is available for passive fathers and negative influencers. Grace is available to grow. Praise God, right? But it all begins with you and me being real about where we're at right now. I want you to notice the second commandment. In summary form, it's to kill sin. What does life on the narrow path look like? It looks like not only jeopardizing the fe- uh, not jeopardizing the faith of others, it also looks like regularly and vigorously putting to death our sin. Let me read verses 43 through 48. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, before we continue, I want you to take a minute, if you're taking notes, to jot something down. If you're not taking notes, do this mentally, okay? Jot down or think about one to two ongoing sins you struggle with, okay? Just mentally, with your pencil, jot down one to two sins you struggle with? What sins do you tend to keep around? What sins do you tend to tolerate? I mean, maybe it's not so bad. I mean, it's not that big. It's not that bad. It's not that shameful. So you kind of keep it around like a pet lion cub. You keep it in the corner of your house. It's in a cage. You feed it a little bit. It's just kind of cute and cuddly for right now, and you're managing its situation. But that lion will one day grow up, bust out of that cage, and eat you. What are those sins for you and for me? Ken Burns has a wonderful Civil War documentary. I think it's actually first uh, written, and then it got turned into this PBS documentary. And... One of the things you see is lots of amputees. People, of course, wanted to live, and medicine was primitive. And so off goes the arm or off goes the leg. Well, friends, there are too many people in our churches going to hell with two good arms and two good eyes and two good legs. But there should be more amputees fighting sin and going to heaven. So what do you need to lop off? Is it your laptop? The way you use your cell phone? television, alcohol, maybe it's certain books that you kind of read and compromise as a result? Do you run to food for comfort? Do you yell at your kids out of sinful anger? Because let's be honest, it's not just I'm irritated. It's sinful anger. 
Jesus says, whatever the occasion, whatever the sin, work hard to cut it out of your life. I don't know about you, but here's how I'm tempted to think about my sin. Two options. Option one, do it. Option two, manage it. Option one, do it. Option two, manage it, right? But kill sin? I mean, it's impossible to kill the sin of lust or kill the sin of pride. I mean, as long as I don't let it get out of hand, as long as I'm kind of making some progress now and then, then I'm good, right? And if I don't make progress, it's okay. I'm not blowing up people's lives after all. I'm okay after all because of the cross. I'm under grace. We're tempted to approach our sin like I approached weeding as a kid. My mom had two green thumbs, so she's outside all the time, and she would invite me to come out and help her with the weeds. And I would wonder, can't we just mow these weeds, like get mower and just kind of go right over the top? I mean, we're going to get the job done. Can't we get rid of the external, potentially embarrassing layer of my sin? And I just that, that's fine. No. Jesus says, don't mow your sins down. Pull them up from the roots. Friends, managing your sin is a dangerous business. It leads to a lot of problems, whether it's spiritual lethargy or a sort of low-grade guilt that's constantly being applied in your life and in your heart. It introduces a slow-working poison in your relationships. It makes you ineffective in ministry. And yeah, you may not be involving yourself in the big, gratuitous sins, but the enemy loves what he's doing to you. He's got you incapacitated. He's got you thinking that you're all set. But Jesus says very clearly here, get the machete out. You know, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Obviously, that's not literal. But it shows us the level of commitment that Jesus wants us to have with regards to our sin. John Owen once said, and I've said this before, but it's such a good, helpful quote. It's a great Puritan. He said, be killing your sin or sin will kill you. Those are the only real choices. We're either making headway with our sin and experiencing kind of this resurrection life and enjoying this narrow path life with Jesus, or we're not making headway and sin is killing us now. And then we're going to get hell later. Got some young people in the room. Didn't know you'd be sitting right in front of me. Hello again. I know you got back from retreat, and I trust that it was profitable. Well, young people, you want to change the world. I remember thinking that and feeling that as a young person. I want to change the world. Well, let me just encourage you. Let Jesus first change your hearts. Do some weed work with your sin. You may have heard this said before. It's certainly not in the Bible, but the the, the kind of wisdom is in the Bible. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It begins in your hearts. It begins in my heart, with your thoughts, with your desires. And so let me encourage you at that level, shoot the lion. Mow, don't mow the weeds, pull the weeds up from their roots. Now, is Jesus saying you can achieve a sort of perfection? No, of course not. But here's the deal. Making real progress against particular sins is not only possible. It's essential. 
Fighting sin is part of the cruciform life. It's part of the narrow path. If you're not fighting sin, you may not be a Christian. If there's no lifestyle of repentance, you may not be a real Christian. So we've got to have a new perspective with our sin. We've got to think about our sins, our particular sins, with their death in view. I want you to go back to your list of one to two sins. Maybe it was gossip or anger or lack of gentleness or lust, selfishness or pettiness or jealousy. What would it look like for you to kill that particular sin? What would it look like for you to repent early and often of that particular sin? Listen, friends, be honest about your sins. God will forgive you. He will give you grace to grow, but it begins with a sort of exposure before the Lord and other people. And there's something sweet about that. There's something painful in that, but there's something sweet about that as well. In Hebrews, it says that our God is a consuming fire. Probably read that before. It's a powerful image, isn't it? We see it at work in our passage this morning. Our God is a consuming fire. No matter who you are, no matter how you relate to God, he will consume you with his fire, which means he will not leave you the way you are. He will consume us one way or another. Either we will experience the fire of purification for the sake of saltiness, or we will experience the fire of condemnation for the sake of his justice. Two paths, which of course begs the question, which path are you on? If you're not a Christian, if you're listening, maybe you've been offended by this message. Pastor, you're telling me I'm going to hell. You know? You're trying to scare me, aren't you? No, I, I think Jesus is trying to warn you this morning. And I would be unloving to withhold that from you. Hell is real. And the path to hell is wide and popular and easy, but it's also spiritually bankrupt. It won't give you what you actually need right now. Your greatest need isn't happiness. Your greatest need is forgiveness. And forgiveness is only provided on this narrow path. And you can get on this narrow path if you trust in Christ alone for forgiveness. That's why he came and died on the cross. And if you repent of your sins, if you repent of this old path, and you begin to walk with him. Now, for the Christian, for the Christian, if you're here in this room, you're a Christian, if you're genuinely converted, these fires provide us with a lot of reassurance, actually. We often think about what Jesus saves us to. He saves us to a new life with him and a new church family with brothers and sisters. And he saves us to this future celestial city, which is all wonderful things. But have we forgotten what God has saved us from? When Jesus hung on the cross for you, Christian, he bore the curse of hell for you. He took your curse so you can take his blessing. He experienced something worse than a millstone and drowning. He experienced the judgment that was due our name. He experienced separation from his father so that you and I will never have to experience that. And so, yes, look at the wonderful things he has saved us to. But look at all that he has saved us 
from. Be grateful this morning. Be humbled by it this morning. Because we're not on this narrow path because of anything that we've done. It's not my spiritual resume. It's not the spiritual coattails of my parents or your parents. It's simply by the grace of God that we're on this path. So take comfort in the fact that if you are a Christian, your life is safe and secure in his hands. The path is narrow. Our crosses and losses are heavy, aren't they? The battle against sin is very difficult. But he who started a good work in you will bring you safely home. So Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? It's that you are not your own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus. Amen. Let's take a moment now to ponder the passage as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.